Now, uh, this morning we're continuing our series we've just called Seeing Jesus. And we basically said there is a way to look at something but not really see it. And sometimes this happens with Jesus. We look at his life, we look at the Bible, we come to church, we look at other Christians, we look in our own lives, and we look at Jesus, but we don't really see him or we don't see him as he really is. Wouldn't it be incredible this Easter season for you and I to really see Jesus, to see the real Jesus? Wouldn't that be a life-changing event? Not what people say about him, not people's perceptions about him, but the real him. Seeing Jesus clearly is the most critical issue of our lives. And that's what we've been talking about. Now last week we, said, we kind of uh, boiled all that down into this statement. I just want to share with you if you weren't here. The better we see Jesus, the better we see ourselves. The better we see ourselves, the more we see our need for Jesus. That's what happens when you and I see Jesus as he really is. Now, I want to, as we turn our attention to today's message on seeing Jesus, I want to share a story with you that is very different than a a story that I would normally share with you at the beginning of a message. You know, usually we have something, you know, uh, something funny or something maybe you could could identify with a little lightly. And I'll go ahead and warn you. This is not one of those stories. This is a, this is a heavy story. Um, it's tragic, and, it, and it's, it's painful. And I just want to kind of give you that disclaimer before we start. There are a couple of funny moments in it, but, uh, but it, it, it's a real story that really happened, and, uh, and it really is painful, but it, it opens up our mind to the, to the thought that we're going to share today. When uh, our, we have two sons, and when uh, our sons each turned 13, uh, I took them on a father-son trip, uh, just kind of a rite of passage kind of thing. And so our, our uh, younger son, Tyler, when he turned 13, uh, wanted to go snorkeling. We'd never been snorkeling. And so uh, we were already in Orlando for a family vacation, so he and I uh, took off on our own for a few more days and drove from Orlando down to Key Largo. If you've never been down to Key Largo snorkeling, you got to do it. It's the only uh, natural reef in America, and it's one of the largest in the world. It's beautiful. It's an underwater paradise. Well, all of this, if you've ever done a new activity you've never done before, all of this is completely foreign to us. Like, we've swam in the pool and swam in rivers and swam in the ocean. But when you get on that little boat, that little charter boat, and they drive you out so far you can't see land anymore, and they say, get out. You know... (laughs) Let's just be honest. Uh, that, that, you, you know, I kind of grew up in the era of sh- Jaws movies. You know what I'm saying? And you're looking around and you're going, you know, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure about that exactly how that's going to be. And you realize you're in water way over your head, and the tide's coming in and it's salt water. You're trying to figure out how to breathe through this apparatus they got on your face. It's not oxygen tanks or anything like that. And so. Um, I don't know exactly why. We were the last ones in the water. Like the whole boat emptied, and we're kind of like, you know, if sharks are coming, you know what I'm saying? You, you don't have to outrun the shark. You just have to outrun everybody else. <laughs> you know, he'll eat them first. So yeah, go out of there. So, so we're out there and uh, tied off, and, 
you know, we get our flippers on. We're trying to learn how to walk in all that apparatus. And we sort of, after all of this great to do, we sort of slip off into the water. And we get out there, and we're just trying to get, I mean, it, we've been 10 minutes. We're just trying to get our bearings. And we're, try, and we're spitting salt water out, trying to figure out how to breathe with this thing. Have you ever done that? How many of you ever done that? You are, it's not like as easy as it looks, or at least it wasn't for us. And so we're trying to breathe and get the water out of our mask and float and not sink and not die and all of that and look out around us for stuff that's coming. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the captain blows uh, the emergency horn, that loud boat horn that everybody blows at high school graduations. You know what I mean? He blows that thing. It sends shock waves out across the water, and he comes on the mic. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. Everyone return to the boat now. And we're just going, you know, we're half underwater thinking we can hear. All I can think is, because I've never done this, think, there's a shark sighting. I mean, there's no other answer for that. There is a shark sighting. Jaws is coming. Like, like a 30-foot shark is coming to eat everybody. And I can tell you, we were the last ones off the boat, but guess who was first on? <laughs> yes, we were. Yes, we were. We were first back up. We climbed up with those little fins. I mean, you should have seen us stroking, man. We got back to that boat. It looked like a jet ski coming across. Up that ladder. On the boat, baby. Y'all be careful out there now, all right? Come on, you can do it. And we got back on the boat. And as we got back on the boat, uh, the captain has like a, a, a lifeguard or whatever on the boat. She jumps over the front of the boat into the water. And I thought, where, where is she? What's happened? And, and they're, they're calling to a guy. Sir, please turn over. Please turn over. Sir, please turn over. And she's swimming toward him. He's not moving. So everybody gets back on the boat. And, and she, she wraps her arms around this guy who's just open in the water face down. And she wraps her arms around him and pulls him back to the boat. And he's this big guy. And uh, it takes several people to sort of hoist him up the ladder to get him back up on the boat. And uh, those little boats, I mean, they're, you know, there's 20-something people on the boat, and there's just barely room for everybody to sit. There's not much room on the boat. And, and uh, as I'm watching this happening, I, you get that feeling, something's wrong. Something is wrong. And the man's body's completely limp, and they hoist him back up on the boat, and they lay him down on the floor... And a, a, there was, a, I think, an EMT and maybe some kind of doctor that happened to be on board. And they're, they're working on him, trying to revive him. And they just can't revive him. And, and, I'm, and I'm watching this situation. I've got my 13-year-old my son here, and I said, hey, let's pray. Like, I don't know, I don't know, like, I don't have any medical expertise. I can't help. Let's pray. And so, we're, but we can pray. We're Christians. We can pray. So we just started praying, God, please, touch this man. I don't know this man. Touch this man. Heal this man. Revive this man. Put life back in him. Help him. And as I'm looking at him and I'm watching all this, your feet away, you can almost touch him. I'm realizing this is not uh, good. And it looked like to me he was already gone. And so I'm watching. He's a 70-year-old man from Chicago. He's got his wife with him. His uh, son-in-law is with him and their three grandchildren. And, and they're, they're right there behind him. And they're kind of holding the grandchildren with their back to all of this. And his wife is crying. 
and, um, and, and, he, and he was gone. They lost him. Later on, we read in the newspaper he had a heart attack while he was out in the water and drowned. And they, and they pulled him in. And, um, and as I'm looking at this scene, you, it, 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 you're, you can't go anywhere. You're locked right there facing this thing as, as a man dies. And uh, I, I slid over to his wife and to her son, and I said, hey, um, boy, I, I'm so sorry about what's happening right now. Uh, I'm a pastor. Is there anything I can do to help you? And, and immediately, uh, he spoke up and said, no. Like, like, like get away. We're not, we're, we don't need any of that right now. We're not open to this. And so I just sort of withdrew. But the, the utter hopelessness that gripped that boat was heartbreaking. And reading the conversations and reaction of the family, I can only assume that that man left earth without ever knowing Jesus. Now this tragic scene is similar to me to what a person who doesn't know Jesus is experiencing. Now follow me. I'm not suggesting that everybody that you know that doesn't know Jesus is walking around in some fully aware state of depression and hopelessness. I'm not saying that. I am saying that whether they feel it or not, or whether they realize it or not, or whether they're aware of it or not, the same hopelessness that I felt in that boat that day grips the life of every believer on earth. Because in the end, this is what it is. If you've ever gone to a funeral of, uh, with an entirely unsaved family, as far as you can see, you feel the hopelessness. So whether you can live life aware of it or not, it's there. The sense of hopelessness that gripped that boat reminds me of a man in the Bible who was drowning in an ocean of darkness. We don't know how he got this way. We don't know what pain must have filled his life that drove him to this bondage. But the Bible gives us a vivid picture of what it looks like. In Mark chapter 5, verse 3, I just want to read you a simple description of this man. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is the, one of the strangest stories in the whole Bible. He lived in the graveyard. He lived among the tombstones. He couldn't live or function in society as a normal person. Chains couldn't hold him. He cried out like an animal at night. He was self-destructive and suicidal and walked around having all his clothes torn off. Now, let's just be honest about something this morning. You may have been pretty low, and you may know people who've been pretty low, but this man's not low. He's at the bottom. Like, this is as low as it gets. And if you and I have ever seen a hopeless situation, surely it's this guy. But look at verse 6. <laughs> when he, what are those next two words? Saw Jesus. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. When he saw Jesus, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. When hopelessness meets hope, something's got to give. 
This man saw Jesus, and I mean really saw him. Verse 7, he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. With his body, he's moving toward Jesus, but this conflict that's inside him is driving him away. For Jesus had said, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Okay, so this man's not just drowning in sin. He has an evil spirit. He has a demon living inside him. Verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, now he's not talking to the man anymore. He's talking to the evil spirit in the man. He says, what is your name? And, And the spirit through the man answers him back, my name is Legion, for we are many. So, so Jesus asked for the name, the answer is legion. In other words, there's more than one of us in here. Now, a legion of soldiers was anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000. That's what a legion of Roman soldiers was. Who knows how many demons were in this man, but they were saying, hey, there's more of us than there is of you. Go help somebody else. Leave this man alone. He's way too much trouble. He's beyond help. Isn't that the way hopelessness always works? Even God can't help you? Anybody ever said that to you? You ever had that thought pop in your mind? Even God can't help you? You're different? That's the way these voices always sound. Satan always lies. And he's lying to some of us this morning. And he says things like this. You're the exception. This will work for everyone but you. You've gone too far. You've lived too long. You're too old. You're too far away. You've done too much. You're too young. You're too broken. Maybe you have a loved one that's far away from God and Satan has lied to you and said they're beyond hope. Maybe for some of you, you're sitting here listening to this story this morning and you're going, hey, I'm so glad that all that kind of crazy stuff happened back then in the Bible. Because, I mean, at least we're now in America. And we have money, and we have education, and we have modern medicine, and we have psychologists, and we have technology, and we understand all these things better now. We don't have to rely on such primitive explanations. So let's just go ahead and say it. Let's just go ahead and say it out loud. We're way too smart for darkness. We're way too sophisticated for all of that now. You know, Satan loves it when we believe things just like that. Because we say, oh, he's just a boogeyman. Blah, 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 blah. He's just a boogeyman. Everybody knows that's a fairy tale. Everybody knows that's not real. Everybody knows things like that don't happen anymore. In that setting, Satan ruled through fear and superstition and was more than happy to come straight through the front door. In our setting, more often than not, Satan rules through lies, and he is more than happy to come in the back door at night when you don't see him. Either way, the result is the same, and mark it down, Satan is the most result-oriented person you ever met. He don't care about the method. The result is hopelessness. And the people around this man considered him to be Hopeless. Maybe you know somebody like that. And I'm sure this man himself believed he was hopeless, but when hopelessness met the God of all hope, his life changed, and thousands of demons couldn't stop him from seeing freedom. Verse 14, And the people went out to see what happened. (laughs) 
You want to cause a ruckus? Let somebody who everybody thought was hopeless get saved. Find the person, find the person, see the person. Everybody said, oh, no, they just believe different. They were raised different. They don't believe. They don't see. They'll never see. They're too far. They're too hurt. They're too wounded. They're too angry. They're too bitter. They're too addicted. They're too bound. Let that person get saved, and it'll cause a ruckus. And when they, So the people heard and came out. They'd all been afraid of this guy. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind because he saw Jesus. Now, I've only got two points this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Here's the first one. No one is outside of God's reach. No one. I come today to speak hope. I come today to speak life. I come today to speak faith. No one is outside of God's reach. I read an article yesterday about a lady who gave eight lessons about evangelism. Her name's Dr. Butterfield. She was a former lesbian and a literature professor at Syracuse University. And a pastor and his wife reached out to her, invited her into their home for dinner, loved her, accepted her, built a relationship with her. And, and, and in this article, she shares the eight things that they did really well that helped to reach out to her and show her God's love. Over time, she saw Jesus in them, the real Jesus. And she met Jesus for herself. And today, she's a Christian mother and a pastor's wife. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. I was so intrigued by the story. This morning, I posted the full story on my Facebook page. If you want to go read the article, it's, it's encouraging. It's incredible. I'd encourage you to do that. There's no such thing as a hopeless person. You're not hopeless, and no one you know is hopeless. And when a person really sees Jesus, their life has changed. Now, I want to tell you about one other person uh, in the Bible who, who met Jesus, who really saw Jesus. And I want to give you my second point from his life. Now, he seems like the most unlikely of all people uh, to see Jesus because, ironically, he was physically blind. So, this is the blind man who saw Jesus. How many, how many of you have ever uh, done like a cave tour? How many of you ever done like a cave tour? You ever done like a cave tour? Maybe DeSoto Caverns or, you know, Rock City or, or one of those. Uh, Ruby Falls, you can kind of go inside the mountain. If you've ever been on one of these tours, they are uh, impressive, they're beautiful, the temperature drops, you know, you're, you're in a, an, an alien environment, you might see these beautiful rock formations that, and then they'll do like a colored light show to kind of highlight everything, and it's really, really beautiful. There's a good chance, if you've been on one of those tours, at some point in the tour, the guide would tell everybody where to stand safely and be still, and they'd turn the lights off. And then the guide would say something like this, what you're experiencing now is at least 40% greater darkness than you'll ever experience on the surface of the earth. This is pure, unfiltered, unpolluted darkness. And you've heard that phrase, can't see your hand in front of your face. Maybe you put your hand and hit your face and go, who is that? Who just did that? Oh, that was me. Yeah, 
Just testing myself. It, 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 it's a pretty helpless feeling because you realize just having that one sentence cut off how limited you really are. You eventually want them to hurry up and turn the lights back on. It begins to make your other senses kind of freak out. Your hearing becomes supersonic. You can hear 300 miles away. You're trying to smell. All your senses are trying to compensate. Some people even lose their balance in caves. You know, they feel like the ground's moving. Now imagine if you're trapped in that kind of dark place 24 hours a day. Like that's your life. Imagine if it's permanent. That's the position this blind man is in. We don't know what caused his blindness. Maybe it was an injury. Maybe it was a disease. Maybe he was born that way. Either way, he's in total darkness. He doesn't know what it's like to see the sky or the clouds or the moon or the stars or the trees or a lake or a river. He doesn't know what it looks like to see children running in a green field. He doesn't know what it looks like to see another person cry or Watch another person's facial expression change when you talk to them. Since Bartimaeus was blind, he was, however, allowed by the authorities of the day to beg. Now, understanding this will help us kind of understand how this story went when he met Jesus. And that day, there were official, like designated places that beggars could go, kind of like we have designated handicap parking. When you came on our property this morning or you go anywhere else around, code says that there need to be um, a, a certain number of handicapped spots close to the building to help uh, make it more convenient for people who have trouble traveling. In the same way, in this time, kind of like handicapped parking spaces, there were designated places that beggars could sit. And they could sit and beg, and hopefully somebody would have mercy on them. And so historians tell us that uh, official beggars wore kind of like a garment, Sort of like when you go on the highway and you see people wearing orange vests, maybe picking up things. They're clearly marked for safety and everything else. Well, these beggars had certain garments that they would wrap themselves in so that everyone would be able to identify them. This is not a fraud. This is someone authorized by the government to sit in this crossroads or wherever, the doorway entrance, and beg. Uh, so Bartimaeus was one of these people. He would, for the rest of his life, be a blind beggar. And Bartimaeus' life had a real hopelessness about it. But Bartimaeus did have one thing going for him. Although he could not see physically, he could see spiritually. Now with that understanding, let's read Mark chapter 10, 46. And I, I just want you to hear the story of how he, how he met Jesus. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples uh, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. He's in his handicapped parking spot. He's got his uh, shirt on, whatever they wore, robe on, that designated him. He's there begging in the road, and Jesus and his company's going by. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But look, people rebuked him. Be quiet. Don't bother him. He's here for other kinds of people. You don't belong. But the Bible says he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
So one day, Jesus shows up in Jericho, Bartimaeus' hometown. Bartimaeus hears about it. He's probably heard stories about how Jesus had healed people, and he was hoping that he might see Jesus that day. Now remember, he's physically blind, but he's not spiritually blind. So when Jesus was passing by, everyone's looking at Bartimaeus. Everyone's looking at Jesus, but Bartimaeus could really see him. So he yelled out, Son of David, have mercy on me. They told him, be quiet, be quiet. And he shouted louder, verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, time out. Over the noise of the crowd, I can hear someone calling my name. Call him. So they call the blind man. And Jesus says to him, cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Now look, if we didn't know that his cloak had a special identification about it, that wouldn't mean anything to us. But he took the cloak that designated him as a beggar. Why did he take it off? He didn't have to take it off to stand up. But he took it off because he was throwing off his old identity. Even before he was healed, Bartimaeus threw away his identity as a beggar and a blind man. He threw down his handicap sticker. And finally, this hopeless man had hope. He was physically blind, but he wasn't spiritually blind. He could see the real Jesus, and his spiritual vision had him moving toward Jesus. And just like the other man we spoke about a few minutes ago who was filled with demons, both of these men were hopeless, but they could see Jesus. Verse 51, what do you want me to do, Jesus asked him. Isn't that interesting? Is it like not obvious? What do you mean, what do I want you to do for me? I'm designated to sit in this spot as a beggar the rest of my life because I can't see. Duh. Let me see. Sometimes Jesus asks those questions not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he wants to know if you know the answer. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Now think about it for a minute. Bartimaeus was used to getting pennies and nickels, and most of the time probably nothing. And no doubt he had suffered rejection and teasing and maybe even people stealing from him because they would trick him because he couldn't see. And this may have been the first time in his entire life anyone had ever looked at him and said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And this question opened his eyes a little wider to see the real Jesus. This man isn't like anybody else that's ever passed me and talked to me. He's talking to me different than other people talk to me. Verse 52, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight. And follow Jesus along the road. Wouldn't it be an interesting camera angle to watch all of this play out from the spot where he dropped his cloak? If you just stood beside the man, watched him stand up, throw his cloak down, and stood there beside, wonder if he went back and got that cloak? I bet he didn't. He stood up. His eyes were open, he followed Jesus, and if you'd allow me to interject this, and left his cloak there. 
He didn't need it anymore. His life had changed. The blind man who could see Jesus received more sight. Here's a powerful truth you might want to write down. The more clearly you see Jesus, the more clearly you see everything else. The more clearly you see Jesus, the more clearly you see everything else. One of the most crucial parts of our life is clarity. To see things as they really are. To see ourselves as we really are. To see Jesus as He really is. How about you this morning? How's your vision? How's your sight? How's your seeing? We, tr- we struggle with our sight all the time. We believe God can love other people. But He, but he can't love us. We struggle to believe how he could really love us but that belief might come so easy when we're talking of course God loves them but I know what I've done I know I know myself we mistake who Jesus really is sometimes for what people who follow him have done well when I was a kid this pastor or Sunday school teacher or youth pastor or leader or deacon or whatever did blah, 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 blah to me. Or didn't do something for me that they should have done. And we mistake the real Jesus for what other people who follow him, the, the humanity and the frailties and the mistakes and sometimes the sins that they've committed. But don't put that on Jesus. Sometimes we can't see Jesus or we can't see what's holding us back because we've never accepted things the way they are. And all these things happen when we don't see the real Jesus. We don't really see who he is. See, the non-Christian and the Christian who can't grow have one thing in common. There's a spiritual blindness that's holding them back. But a clear picture of Jesus changes that. I have good news for you this morning though and I've already given you the first powerful truth. No one is outside of God's reach. Here's the second truth. There's a cure for spiritual blindness. Believer or not there is a cure. A woman named Rose Crawford had been blind for 50 years and she said, I just can't I just can't believe it. As the doctor lifted the bandages off her eyes after recovering from a delicate surgery in an Ontario hospital, she wept for joy in the first time her life. Uh, there's this dazzling, beautiful world uh, full of color and uh, uh, magic that filled her eyes. She was able to see. The amazing thing about the story is that 20 years of her blindness had been completely unnecessary she didn't know she was unaware that there was a surgical procedure that had been developed and an operation could be given to her that would restore her eyes since she was 30 years old but she didn't know she's now 50 and the doctor said she just figured there was nothing that could be done for her condition oh how her life would have been different these last 20 years but she didn't know And it changed everything because she couldn't understand. She couldn't see. She didn't know there was a cure. 
Don't let that be your regret this morning. There is a cure for spiritual blindness. For every wall that you hit, for every hindrance that you hit, for everything that you've accepted in your life that's less than what God wants for you is spiritual blindness. And there's a cure for that. It's called seeing Jesus for who he really, really is. So this morning, as our, our worship team will be coming in a minute, I want to ask you today, today's about hope. Today's about encouragement. Is there a place in your life that you've lost hope? Is there a place in your life that you've become discouraged? Is there a battle you've fought for so long? When we wrestle these battles that won't change, it wears us down and it discourages us and it discourages our spirit and it discourages our heart and we get, and we get worn down. But this morning, what I want to do is I want us to um, put our eyes on Jesus. And so we're going to end service a little different today. We've kind of come to this point a little bit earlier than normal. And what I want us to do, uh, you, usually maybe if you start singing at the end, it's time to dismiss. It's not time to dismiss. We have a little bit of time left. What I want us to do is sing together and worship together this song about Jesus. And after we sing, I want to invite you for prayer. But what I want you to do today is as we're singing, I just want you to ask Jesus. That's all you have to do. Lord, help me see you. Help me see you today in my life, in my battle, where I'm struggling, where there's a wall, where there's a limit, where there's a challenge. God, help me today to see you reveal yourself to me. So would you, would you stand with me this morning, worship team? Would you come? And this morning, we're just going to sing this song. Lord, today we put our eyes on you. Because you are the one. You are the one, Lord. You are the one who walked into the tombs of this man filled with demons. And you spoke hope. You are the one who walked through a town and found a blind man and gave him sight. Lord, you are the one who changes the unchangeable. Lord, gives hope to the hopeless and encouragement to the discouraged. You are the one and you are the only one. And today we put our eyes on you and today we ask you for a special grace that we might see you better. Lord, as we worship you today, would you fill our mind with who you really are?